Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast and Happy New Year. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us this week in the studio, we have Spike columnist, Luke Gittos. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the rise and fall of Andrew Tate, the latest from the grooming gang scandal and the emptiness of Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. So Andrew Tate, possibly the world's most famous man on the internet, at least. <laughs> Maybe people in the real world don't know who he is. Mm. Um, has been arrested in Romania just before the new year under suspicions of people trafficking. I mean, we're going to put that arrest to one side for a moment. Let's just talk about the Tate phenomenon a little bit. I mean, he came to attention most recently with this kind of spat with Greta Thunberg on Twitter. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so he basically sort of sent for Greta Thunberg by talking about how many supercars he drives and, you know, all the carbon emissions that they spew out and so on. Um, so I forget what he what the specific message was, but, you know, suggesting that she she should he should get in contact with her or whatever. So she, her or whoever runs her social media, more likely, fired back with this very retweeted and liked tweet um, saying, yes, here's my email. Please do enlighten me. Smalldickenergy at getalife.com. Mm. Uh, widely seen to have won that particular round, not least because in his follow-up video, Andrew Tate in his kind of Romanian warehouse slash mansion, smoking a cigar, um, did this very lame response video, you know. I've not been owned, I Ex swear, yeah. Exactly, um, which some people on the internet speculated was actually the spark for his arrest, although I don't think that's necessarily been corroborated by the authorities in Romania. So, you know, aside from anything else, you do think how tragic it is that that is how 2022 probably had to end, which is with a kind of very high profile Twitter spat between Greta Thunberg and Andrew Tate, the two totems of our era. Yeah. The, the best we can produce, apparently. <laughs> and Luke, I mean, have you followed Andrew Tate at all? Are you familiar with some of his work? I mean, what, do you, what would you say is behind the phenomenon? What makes him the most searched person on the internet? Well, I have to admit, I first became aware of Andrew Tate thanks to being spoken about on this podcast, which I do resent you for. <laughs> but um, ever since then, I have looked into him because I do think he's interesting. I think fundamentally he fills a particular void in the lives of some young men, which is a kind of vision for what being a man is. Now, that vision is very corrupted, mm. uh, an awful vision. He believes that women are property. He believes that men should be able to cheat on their wives he seems to have very little regard for men playing any serious role in the family. Um, but I, nonetheless, he presents a kind of what is presented as a coherent vision of what it is to be a modern man. And he's not the only one. I think he represents a kind of more extreme version of what we see in people like Jordan Peterson and others who kind of are filling a void in the sense of what makes a modern man. Yeah. And, you know, you have to, while I think we can laugh at Andrew Tate, and I think we should regularly laugh at Andrew Tate, I think we do have to take his reach quite seriously mm. because it's undeniable that he appeals to a lot of people and a lot of young men. Yeah. So we have to ask very serious questions about where that void comes from. Mm. And I do think at a time where society tends to do men down. I think that is undeniable about um, some aspects of modern life. You know, it can be difficult for young men in particular to see worthwhile leaders and um, and icons out there, people who aren't Andrew Tate, who aren't Jordan Peterson, who do present a kind of cohesive and attractive vision for what it is to be a man today. We're more likely to see men being presented as something problematic, I think, in general, in modern life. So I think that's why he's so popular. Yeah. He presents an idea of what it is to be a man and that for a lot of young people is appealing. Tom, on one level, 
isn't it also just that some of his content is quite funny and attention grabbing? I think that's definitely a piece of it because you don't go viral necessarily just because of the fact that people are sat there, you know, plaintively thinking about what it is that you're saying. Sometimes outrage works on the internet <laughs> more yeah. so than almost anywhere else. So similar, he's just, in some respects, it's also similar figures like an Alex Jones or whatever, mm. as far as a lot, there's going to be a sizable chunk of that audience who are just kind of enjoying the outrage, enjoying the ridiculousness, enjoying the kind of over the top humour, as you say, of some of the kind of statements that he's made, you know, holding forth on everything, not just from women, but whether or not you should drink sparkling water or not. Yeah. Whether or not that makes you a bitch if you don't want to drink it. Like, this is sort of ultimately... Afraid of the bubbles if you don't Afraid of the it. bubbles. I mean, <laughs> direct quote. It's, it's part, that's part of the picture here. And I think that kind of hints to part of what fueled his kind of rise to prominence, you know, back in the summer of last year when he was kind of de-platformed across various different social media platforms, um, when he was the most searched person on the internet bigger than Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian combined, I think has partly to do with that kind of virality. You know, he kind of encourages his fans to kind of share his videos on TikTok and so on and so forth. So they're all just kind of constantly swirling around. Um, But he's also kind of definitely a kind of byproduct of the culture that we live in. As far as if you do have a very stern culture of you can't say that, you will create a bunch of characters who are going to say that over and over and over again. And that that they're saying is probably going to be quite horrendous. Now, it's not to suggest that outrage at views like his is illegitimate pearl mm. clutching. It's just to say that in a in a kind of time when we pearl clutch about absolutely everything, you give yeah. a lot of room for people like that to operate. And I also think you raise some people's kind of tolerance for <laughs> genuinely outrageous things to quite a high degree. So in so many respects, I think he is a kind of creature of our culture, a kind of like dark reflection of a lot of what's going on. And you see that in just his willingness to just say the most outrageous thing possible. And similarly, as, as Luke was saying, you know, in an age when kind of masculinity is referred to as toxic, when mm. men are sort of done down and whatever, you also create a space for these grifters to pass off misogyny as masculinity and yeah. to try and, you know, fill that void in any way possible because there's no, there's not, there's no really any space in the mainstream for that kind of discussion, I guess. And and Tom, you sort of, you, you hinted earlier at the, you know, the censorship of Andrew Tate, which, I mean, to some extent, he's come back on some mediums, thanks to Elon Musk letting him back on Twitter. But, you know, People have called for him to be censored again, like, um, you know, various Labour Party spokespeople have said, this is what happens when you don't mm-hmm. have regulation of the internet. I mean, look, what do you make of that attempt to simply respond to someone like Andrew Tate with censorship, with clamping down on it? Well, it's consistently disastrous, isn't it? Particularly mm. in the case of Andrew Tate, who sees his own arrest as some action of the Matrix. You know, yeah. he appeals to the Matrix taking him down. He sees uh, and is able to present the government as someone who is trying to crush him through their instruments of censorship. So this entirely plays into his hands and you will fail to censor someone like Andrew Tate because even if you shut down his personal accounts, his content will be shared. That was a big way of how, a big method of his functioning is to make his supporters share the most mm. outrageous things that he sh- he says as widely as possible. And there's only so much that internet censorship can do to prevent that. So one, I think it's a hiding to nothing. And two, I think it helps his overall cause by presenting him as some kind of pariah. Let's uh, move on to talk about um, the long-running grooming gang scandal. Um, One of the centres of that scandal was Rotherham, famously. And um, it was well known that many um, councillors and local authorities and the police knew that the grooming gang's problem was going on, but they in some way either suppressed it or preferred you know, not to talk about it. Now, there was someone who was named in one of the independent reports, a man called Maruf Hussain, and he's alleged to have actually suppressed discussion of this within the local authority. And a GB News investigation has found that he is now working in the NHS as in a senior diversity and inclusion mm. role. 
I mean, Luke, what have you made of that? I mean, it's absurd and insulting at the same time, it feels. Yeah, it's, it's frightening. But you can believe that it would happen, that someone mm. who was involved in this scandal in this way would be uh, over-promoted almost immediately back within the public sector. I mean, Hussein was someone who was directly accused of stifling the very conversations that needed to happen in Rotherham in order to deal with this problem. He was also someone who was accused of making spurious allegations of racism in yep. order to shut down mm. the same conversation. Um, he resigned and was then, it, it appears to have almost immediately found employment elsewhere in the public sector in, as you say, a diversity and inclusion role. He's also someone who's made very questionable remarks about Jews, mm. claiming that they have control and influence because of their resources, in his words. So, it is almost beyond belief that this has not yet been widely picked up on. Um, I, I think it's true to say that the only uh, member of parliament who's picked up on this is Zach Goldsmith. That was what um, Charlie Peters, who's responsible for the investigation, tweeted earlier today. So it's remarkable this hasn't got greater traction. Um, but also it's worth remembering that in Rotherham, Hussein is one example of a broader problem, which yeah. is that individual accountability here has gone completely by the wayside. As well as Alexis Jay's report, there was an IOPC report into the police's handling of uh, Rotherham over those, over those years. And that report was widely criticised because although it made a number of claims about failings at every single level of the police, no one was identified as individually responsible. No heads yeah. rolled within the police. And this comes at a time when at the end of last year, we had an enormous discussion around police accountability. Mm. You'll remember all the um, reports and publications around why it is that disciplinary investigations into the police don't go anywhere. Mm. Rotherham wasn't mentioned yeah. in that discussion at all. So what I think is becoming increasingly clear with this kind of disregard of individual accountability in the case of Rotherham is repeat something that we've written on Spikes and said on the podcast elsewhere, which is that the victims of these crimes are just dealt with differently. Yeah, It's not thought that these young women, uh, northern working class women, deserve the kind of accountability that other victims deserve. And I think that's the lesson that we take away from Hussein and others. And Tom, you know, isn't it also the case that there's a nervousness around the perpetrators, mm. particularly, you know, talking about their ethnicity? Um, that's something that comes up in just about every single report you mm -hmm. see um, in, into grooming gangs. And, and this is in the figure like Hussein, you see someone who was directly involved in, in allegedly trying to suppress that particular discussion in the name of community relations, in yeah. the name of community cohesion, which seems to me a, a bizarre conclusion to draw anyway. You know, mm. if, if anything, you're going to kind of inflame, inflame the extremes by not dealing with these sorts of issues in a very clear-eyed sort of fashion. Um, and also just, I think, shows the moral rot at the heart of the kind of, whether we want to call it politically correct, identity politics, wokeness, whatever you might want to say, which has just kind of taken root in so many of our public sector institutions. The idea that it doesn't do to talk about certain things. Um, the idea that in the name of a cohesive multicultural society, you should throw some of the most genuinely vulnerable people in society, you know, young, working class, often um, in care yeah. girls under the bus is morally abhorrent. And yet this is done in the, in the name of all that is good and holy and all that a progressive liberal person should actually seek to do. Maybe that's part of the reason people still struggle with it. But then again, I think the fact that this doesn't even register, given the scale of what we're talking about here, you know, in Rotherham, the numbers vary slightly, but 1,500 roughly victims um, who are found similar numbers in Telford, this yeah. is something that has happened. The length and breadth of England and parts of the rest of the UK as well, 
And yet we still find ourselves talking endlessly about, again, kind of minor aspects of sexual misconduct in Parliament, for yeah. instance. So a journalist gets a knee touch 20 years ago, and that's front page news for a week. Mm. And yet this, it's not, it's not that it's not investigated. There was a time when it wasn't investigated. It took yeah. people like Andrew Norfolk at the Times and others to really start to take this particularly seriously. But even at a time when we've got to the point where we know about a lot of these things, uh, we just kind of discuss it and then promptly move on. And that seems to be what's happened in Rotherham as well. You know, again, no heads rolled. People just moved on, got another job somewhere else, uh, a yeah. pretty fair wage, and no one bothered to even kind of check what his particular background was. And it seems quite significant that this was a diversity job, diversity and inclusion job. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the proliferation of these non-jobs across the state. I mean, what do you make of that aspect of this, Luke? Well, uh, <clears throat> I think that it clearly, in this case, hides a host of evils, doesn't it? And it's ironic that um, another aspect of GB News's reporting was that Hussein was appointed to basically lecture the police on diversity, mm. having nonetheless stifled the uh, one of the most significant investigations and complex investigations um, they'd ever had. And so I, I guess to, to diversity seems to be more about kind of baiting and being sectarian. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and that, I suppose, what we see in all areas where this is promoted is a kind of push towards defending one's own um, particular ethnic group or background at the expense of cohesion. Because as Tom suggests, you know, this is this does not appear to be a figure who is um, competent in promoting cohesion, mm. um, but nonetheless has been appointed in quite a, se a, quite a senior role designed to do precisely that. And it, it was interesting as well, because um, on that on that point about um, the reasons that were given behind this sort of suppression, not just in Rotherham, but, you know, in the media, the kind of general blackout public discussion, because it was for a very long time that this was essentially presented, the grooming gangs phenomenon was essentially presented as a far-right conspiracy theory. Yeah. The only people you would find willing to talk about it were like the BMP and the EDL and so on. Um, in fact, Anne Cry, the Labour, former Labour MP for Keith Lee, which was one of the kind of earlier... Uh, people sounding the alarm about this and of course got all the death threats and shouts of bigotry as a result of this made exactly this point that when people first came to her to explain what was going on mm. there was st she still even had this level of resistance because thought the only people I've heard this from is those people you yeah. know and it just strikes me as if you wanted to kind of create a sort of strategy unthinking or thinking that would be basically create a situation where a, a horrible industrial scale crime was only going to be talked about by the most nefarious people in public debate, mm. this is what you would do. <laughs> and it's it's monstrous in so many different ways. And, it, and it's it's incredible that if it wasn't for people like Charlie Peters at, at GB News, former Spikes intern, I should mention, um, following up on this stuff, yeah. we wouldn't even know about these matters. It's, 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 it's something which is still a kind of lingering scandal, even in the places where we thought all of these investigations had taken place. So finally, let's talk about the two big political speeches. Um, both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have delivered their New Year's messages. I can't say that I saw much of a big difference between uh, the two of them. They're even held in the same venue. Did you see in yeah. East <laughs> 24 hours apart in, in East London. <laughs> Says it all really put. I mean, this seems to, more than anything, Luke, seems to signify a new quite drab era of politics being upon us? Is this the return of technocracy, managerialism, that kind of politics? Yeah, I mean, I saw comparisons to 1997, where um, Sunak was clearly referencing Tony Blair and his revelation of 
the key promises mm, by which five pledges, the five pledges, which Tony Blair did, but uh, back in the lead up to the ninety seven general election, in order to kind of give the public a method of measuring competence. Mm. And of course, in ninety seven, you did see this kind of contest over the centre ground. A new Labour was an attempt to steal some of that uh, centre ground back from the Tories, particularly around law and order and around public finances. And uh, there's a lot of parallels here today. The difference with today is that we are facing crisis in many areas of public life. You know, our, uh, economically, in terms of our public services, we are in a deep, deep hole. And technocracy does not appear to ever be the answer. You yeah. know, as we've written on Spike this week, um, technocracy consistently fails to deal with uh, real problems of economic crisis. So I think what we are entering in in this general election that will come at some point in 2024 is kind of a tussle over who can appear the most competent for longest. Um, and I think that is a very, very depressing prospect for voters because it doesn't cut through. No one, I mean, pe people are not inspired by this technocratic model of politics, although the polling seems to suggest that... Um, Keir Starmer is now enjoying a comfortable lead and has done for, for some months. That does seem to be as a result of the collapse of Tory support, yeah. Tory infighting um, and a hemorrhaging of their support around uh, the constituencies they won in the last election. So I think there must be more to the next general election. There is something to say that... Um, you know, th there is something to say that Keir Starmer being reserved, we'll come on to talk about Starmer's speech, which was completely lacking in any detail. Mm. You know, there's something to say that they would keep stuff back from speech at this stage, just in case the government stole policies from them, which is all very possible, given that they don't seem to have many original ideas of their own. But at the moment, we are left with yeah a tussle over the middle ground, technocracy, and very little big thinking about how to tackle the major problems that we face. It was interesting, Tom, I think, you know, Sirianak obviously selling himself on this competence, mm -hmm. um, but still not really offering much detail, not really showing that he has a grip on mm. the challenges that he wants to face. I mean, the speech seemed to consist largely of talking about money that had already been announced, all these kind of tinkering little schemes that had already been implemented. Family hubs. Family hubs being another one. They love their <laughs> hubs, don't they? See, there seems to be this kind of idea, <laughs> in the absence of any big thinking, what we'll do is either create a kind of like parallel version of a service that exists. Like mm. you, could, you could have your cheap, you know, you could have your medical treatment at home via Zoom or something. Yeah. So even it's like a pale imitation or it's something that people probably don't really need. You know, mm. some bloke in a library handing out leaflets about changing nappies or something. This is the most that they can manage. But so on the one hand, you have this kind of attempt to say, I've got a grip on this particular crisis and kind of failing to do that. It was also presented Sunak speech as his big vision speech, yeah. which is what you hear people in politics talk about, usually when the person involved has no vision whatsoever. Mm. You know, if you have to say it, you probably don't have it. And what did he come out with? I mean, it was family, yeah. enterprise, maths was another one. <laughs> you know, the things, I mean, I, I don't know anyone who's, a, who's against enterprise, family or maths, but, you know, maybe they're out there. <laughs> Some sickos. Some sort of <laughs> big dividing line for him and the rest of the politics. But it's almost like he couldn't have... Uh, an ideology if you tried you know yeah. you're trying to like, will one into existence and failing miserably and it, do, it is just particularly depressing because you do see that completely mirrored on the other side there's very little that distinguishes the two parties now we are really back to them kind of dancing on the head of a pin running on competence as you say or Tory cronyism on the Labour side Yeah. and given the fact that again that technocratic politics is, as Luke was saying is proven time and again incapable of dealing with moments of crisis often make things worse have a tendency to kind of hold towards groupthink, to double mm. down on failed orthodoxies, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in relation to energy or anything like that. You're not really seeing a break from any of the very damaging green policies, for instance, that have really helped dig this particular hole for us. Um, and yet at the same time, there's no kind of broader vision as to how we might 
carve out a different society yeah. in which these kinds of crises and injustices don't take place. There's not even any real prospect of that whatsoever. So it does feel like we're back to that that world of competing bank managers, or in this case, kind of competing Blair tribute acts. Yeah, really. Um, and competing bean counters, and in even more deracinated and unconvincing form. I think <laughs> both of them. You know, I think one of, one of the telling things about the Keir Starmer speech was his appropriation of the slogan "Taking Back." control which to him seemed to mean sort of devolution for me that mm. really sort of summed up he inadvertently highlighted the chasm um you know between the sort of deep challenges we face the kind of populist moment that we all had great hopes for and the drabness of what he's actually offering yeah i think starmer is currently relying on the collapse of support among the red wall constituencies in order to um win them back mm. ra- rather than offering them any positive vision about what a Labour government would do with these particular areas and what it would mean for them to take. I mean, yeah, as you say, taking back control and devolution actually mean completely different things. You know, taking back control was about national sovereignty. Yeah. It was about um, creating a nation, a collective country to work together. Devolution is about the opposite. It's about effectively breaking the country down. Um, the other thing to say is that, um, you know, the Labour Party at the moment, I saw some reporting in the Times that there is worries among uh, Keir Starmer front bench that they're not cutting through in the media enough and not enough people for example know who the shadow transport secretary is of course i guess the problem i think amongst these communities is not they don't know who the shadow front bench are so they don't care yeah labor has become so detached from these communities this is keir starmer's labor party is not the labor party of old it's not rooted in the communities that it purports to represent it doesn't have support amongst the working communities that uh that, that did vote for Brexit, that mm. did believe in taking back control. So they are forced, therefore, to reach for the lines of uh, that populist moment that gave rise to the Brexit vote without really believing any of it in substance. Mm. Tom, final words? I, I just think on the on the devolution thing, because I think it is quite revealing of how out of ideas Labour are. I mean, they're kind of just deferring to what Gordon Brown said in his big report recently. Yeah. It's a lot of kind of old Blairites and Brownites are kind of being given the task of writing up various different reports. There was a David Blunkett one on skills as well and so on and so forth. So they're kind of having to, so lacking in talent, they kind of go back to the old guard, but also the ideas such as they are not really there. I'm going to steal a point that you made early in the office, Fraser, but it, it does betray a lack of ideas of almost saying, you can make the decisions. What yeah. decisions? You work it out. There yeah. is a kind of, in, a, in the absence of any real vision for the country, it's quite, um, it just be, it, it's something that they can present as a radical change mm. as they would pr- pr- present it but at the same time involves them dodging accountability for actually steering the country in a different direction. And then when you see the substance of what they're talking about, again, we're back to the hubs. I mean, (laughs) before Sunat's speech, about a day before, Labour were talking about the fact that they want to radically overhaul job centres so that local authorities run them. (laughs) That passes for a big political announcement these days. To the barricades. Exactly, to the barricades for (laughs) local authority-controlled job centres. You wouldn't put that on the side of a bus or on a leaflet, but there we go. That's the age we live in, unfortunately. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.